On New Year's Day in 1773, an English pastor by the name of John Newton shared a song with his congregation that he had written as an illustration for a sermon. The song was called Amazing Grace. Newton, a former slave trader, grew up without any particular religious conviction and was pressed into the Royal Navy as a young man. Newton took to being a sailor and eventually became the captain of a slave trading ship. That was until one night when a storm so battered his ship that in terror he cried out to God for mercy. That event marked the beginning of his conversion. His career as a slave trader continued for many more years till he quit going out to sea altogether and began to study theology. Once Newton became a pastor, he began to write songs with a friend of his who was a poet. Though Amazing Grace was written in 1773, it wasn't published until 1779. And even then, it remained relatively unknown for many years. In fact, it wasn't until the Second Great Awakening in the United States it came to prominence. Since there is no known original music for Amazing Grace, it has been associated with over 20 melodies before it was finally put to the tune we know it by today that's called New Britain, which is a mel- uh, the frequent melody that's most frequently used in today. Amazing Grace is without a doubt one of the most recognized and well-known and well-used hymns in the world. It has been recorded by a wide variety of singers, from the Blackwood Brothers to Elvis Presley. It was even sung by Arlo Guthrie at Woodstock in 1969. It is estimated that Amazing Grace is performed about 10 million times a year. Now what made this song so famous isn't the author or the melody, but the theme, grace. The amazing grace of God strikes a chord within virtually every human heart. The amazing grace of God is one of the greatest wonders the world has ever known. What is it about God's grace that makes it so glorious and so amazing? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. I should be on page 895 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at the first ten verses this morning. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, According to Prince, the power of the air, the Spirit, now that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The title of the message this morning is Amazing Grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning with a desire to learn and a desire to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we look today at a passage that is, that is both extraordinarily challenging and wonderfully encouraging. Lord, the temptation for us is to focus on one aspect of that over the other. Lord, it's easy to, to focus on grace and just how good it is and not to really focus on the stuff that would challenge our thinking and challenge our living. Father, we need today for You to help us not to do that. Help us today to have ears that would hear. Help us today to have tender hearts that would receive Your Word and let it sink deep down and bring forth good fruit in our lives. Help us to be sure that we are truly born again through the grace of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, the grace of God is needed by each and every one of us in here today. We need it whether we have ever come to Jesus at all. We need it whether we live for Jesus to the best of our abilities every day of our lives. 
Your Holy Spirit, come upon me today. Guide me that I would speak clearly and I would speak accurately your word. Help me that I would not get in the way and that I would say what you once said, nothing more, nothing less. Be glorified this day in how your word is proclaimed. Be glorified this day in how we respond to your word. Be glorified this day in how we live out the grace that has been given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Ephesians 2 is the quintessential passage on the grace of God. Now the thrust of this passage is that we cannot save ourselves, but we depend wholly on God to save us. That's where it's built, I mean, that's all throughout, but it builds to this in verses 8 and 9. By grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our salvation depends wholly on God. It is only God that can save us. So the key truth today uh, is pretty basic. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, while the mercy and the grace of God are really some of the greatest wonders the world has ever known, they're often misunderstood, they're often marginalized, they're often abused. This morning we want to study, we want to understand what Scripture has to say about God's grace so that we can properly understand it and genuinely experience it in our lives. In order to help us to do that, I want to ask and then answer four questions about God's grace. The first is... Why do I need grace? Why do I need grace? One of the most important truths that anyone can understand about grace is our personal need for grace. Outside of faith in Christ, there is not one person who has ever been born or ever will be born exempt from the need for the grace of God. So again, we ask, why do we need grace? Look at verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Apart from Christ, every person is spiritually dead through trespasses and sins. Now, trespasses and sins are similar words, but they're not exactly the same. Trespass is a willing violation of God's righteous standard. Uh, the word translated as sin, it carries with the idea of missing the mark. With missing the mark, think of it as a marksman shooting at the bullseye on a target. He aims for dead center, but he hits just a little bit to the left. He tried to get it right, but he just didn't. And that's a picture of what sin, the word translated as sin, is. So the picture here is that apart from Jesus, all people are dead. And they're dead because... They have willingly violated God's standard. They are dead because they have missed the mark and not been able to live as God commands, as God expects. And that sin has killed us spiritually apart from Christ. Now there are some today that would teach that humanity is sin sick. In this view, humanity is not well. And they are sick, perhaps even mortally sick, but the situation is not hopeless. All people are at least partially spiritually alive. And as long as they are alive, there is hope. And in this view, man can make changes that will fix the problems in their lives. They can turn over a new leaf. They can educate themselves. They can become a more moral person. They can become a more religious person. They can generally just do all sorts of things to turn themselves around. The problem with this is Scripture. Scripture teaches that we are not sin sick, but we are indeed sin dead. In fact, we are so sin dead that we are unable to change our circumstances apart from Jesus Christ. We are dead and we are helpless in our deadness to fix the problem that we have. We cannot undo what we have done through sin. The result of being sin dead is that we, that we walk according to the course of this world. Right? Now, picture the course of this world as the flow of a river. 
Right? As a river flows, dead bodies just sort of go with the flow. They follow the stream. They go where it leads. We are sin dead apart from Christ. And so in whatever way the world goes, we go as well. Right? When you find someone that, that adopts the latest worldly mindset, the latest worldly vision, the latest worldly view on things, you can be sure that as they are going from here to there to there, they are sin dead. And they are being carried along by the course of this world. They are going with the flow. Because they have no choice. They cannot overcome it. They are dead. And so they are being carried along. But the course is not random, according to Scripture. Wherein in time past you walk, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now that last part of verse 2 it ought to just scare us to death because I find it to be one of the most terrifying pictures in all of Scripture. The prince of the power of the air is Satan. That's the point. And he is the one that charts the course the spiritually dead follow. He is the one that determines what twists and turns they take. He is the one that determines what new idea they embrace. He is the one that leads them from place to place to place. Notice that it says that now worketh. Right? So the idea of worketh is that he is actively at work. Not that he worked in them at some point in the past, but he is at work in them now. Right? So when you look at Let's just say the, the church world. And where the church world is beginning to embrace ideas that have historically been abominable in the church. You find that this is not new scholarship. This is not new revelation. These are spiritually dead people following the course that is laid out by the prince of the power of the air. Who is at work in the scholars and the leaders and the preachers and the people. Leading them to embrace these ungodly and unbiblical ideas. And those who are spiritually dead, they will go with the flow. Those who are spiritually alive will stand against that flow and say, Whoa! Scripture says this is not right. Scripture says this is wrong. But those who just go, Oh, okay. Yeah, I get that. They're following the course because they're spiritually dead and they cannot resist the flow. All spiritually dead people are in some ways influenced by Satan. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? But it is what the Bible says, not just here, but in multiple places. We only have time to look here today. Through this influence that Satan has in the lives of the person that is spiritually dead, he will do all that he can to keep them from coming to Christ. Now, one thing about this, the way Satan works in someone's life to keep them from Christ is not uniform. right? The way he worked in my life to keep me from Christ isn't necessarily the way he worked in your life to keep you from Christ. And it isn't necessarily the way he's working in anyone else's life to keep them from Christ. right? For some, the path that Satan will chart for them, it will be a life of debauchery that will thumb its nose at God's righteous standards. If it feels good, do it. I'm going to do what I want to do. No ancient book is going to tell me what morals I ought to have. The world is different now. I'll do what I want to do. For others, the path will be a life of morality that sees no real need for Jesus. Well, I'm basically a good person. I mean, it's not like I'm killing people. It's not like I'm raping people. I mean, why do I need Jesus? I'm satisfied with my life the way that it is. Look at all of these Christians that are such awful hypocrites. I'm significantly better than all of them. Why do I need Jesus? It will be in involving a progressive, liberal form of Christianity. Well, yes, we believe in Jesus, but the Bible doesn't mean what you think it means. 
Yes, thousands of years of Christian scholars and thousands of years of church history have always understood that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. But now we really look at that and we think, I just don't understand what Jesus meant. It's not very clear. It could mean that there are multiple ways. He might have meant that. Let's just love each other and let's just be nice. And we're sure Jesus is happy about that. And it could be seeking peace or righteousness or spirituality or etc. through the, the plethora of other spiritualities and religions in our world. Oh, I'm, I'm spiritual too. No, no, I'm not a Christian. No, I'm a Jehovah's Witness or I'm, I'm a Mormon. Or I, I believe in kind of a, a New Agey sort of thing. Or I, I'm a Buddhist. Or, or I, I just kind of meditate with the universe and, and receive spiritual energy that way. The means are not as important as the outcome. The outcome is that they stay away from Jesus. All of those people are equally disobedient to God. And that is hugely important to get. The good moral person who sees no need for Jesus is just as spiritually dead, just as disobedient to God as the person who lives a life of debauchery and the person who worships Allah. There is no distinction as far as the Bible is concerned. Satan is at work in their life. Satan is leading them along a course for their lives. And the point of it all is just to keep them from Jesus. Now, the, Paul says in verse 3, Among whom also we all had our conversation, our lives in times past. We all live this way at one point in our lives. Right? And... Up to this point, Paul has been telling the Ephesians, you were, you were, you were. But now he switches and said, and we all were. Right? And what he's saying is that, that this is true for all people. Right? This isn't just verses 1 and 2. That's not just the terrible, wicked Ephesians. And that's not just the terrible, wicked people out there. At one point in time, verses 1 and 2 spoke about us as well. At one point in time, you and I, we were dead in trespasses and sin. At one point in time, we walked according to the course of this world that was laid out by the prince of the power of the air. We were children of disobedience. We were. We all were. But not only does, was that applying to all people, but notice the very last of verse 3. But were by nature the children of wrath. Even as others. Apart from Jesus Christ, all people are by their very nature the children of wrath. Now that, again, that's huge. An enormous number of people in our country would say they believed in God of some sort. An enormous number of people in our country would say they believed in an afterlife of some sort. Call it heaven and hell. But what the majority of people in our country would believe is that everyone's default setting is heaven. And the only way that gets changed is if you do something really, really bad. And then if you do something really, really bad, I mean, and it has to be really, really bad. Then you go from heaven to hell. Scripture teaches the opposite. Scripture teaches every person's default eternal destination is hell. And the only way that destination gets changed is through the grace of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So why do we need the grace of God? Because we are all spiritually dead apart from Christ. We are following the course of this world. We are deceived and influenced by Satan. And we will face God on judgment day. And experience 
terrible, terrible wrath of God. These are the default factory settings. And they can only be changed through the grace of God. Every person stands in desperate need of receiving the salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Why do I need grace? Why does God give grace? Because, I mean, verses 1 through 3, that's not a pleasant picture, is it? Why would God give grace to people like that? If Ephesians 2 stopped at verse 3, it would be extraordinarily depressing. But it doesn't. It says, but. Now we know from experience that when someone says, but, things are about to change. I'd love to help you, but, what does that mean? They're not going to. I love you, but, what are they about to do? Say something bad about you. In the same way, when we see here, this is what we were, but God, things are about to change. Why does the but God appear? Why does God give grace? Verse 4 says it's because God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. This is who we were, but God. Now, notice, this is who we were, and that is who we would be without the but. Without the but God, we would stay spiritually dead, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living, fulfilling our desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we would stay the children of wrath. But God intervenes. And He intervenes because He is merciful. Now the richness and the greatness of God's mercy is seen primarily in two ways. The first is that He withholds judgment for a time. The wages of sin is what? It is death. When is that wage payable? Immediately. If God were not merciful, He would kill us and exact that wage the very moment that we sinned. But God is merciful. And so He withholds this judgment For a period of time. The other way that God's mercy is seen. Is that he offers a way of escape. From the judgment. But if all God did was hold off judgment from this life. And allowed us to live at a ripe old age. And then we died and still went to judgment. Where we would face his wrath. That would be merciful. But that would not be the fullness of the mercy. That God offers. God says he stops the mercy. Or he stops the wrath. But then he also offers a way out from underneath it. Uh, Imagine it this way. Imagine that you're under an awning that's piled with thousands of pounds of rocks. And the rocks represent the judgment of God. And then suddenly the pillars holding the rocks collapse. And they begin to fall on us. God's mercy is he reaches his hand in there and he catches the rocks so they don't fall and crush us. And then with his other hand, he reaches out and he says, let me pull you out from underneath this judgment to come. Let me pull you out of the way of this wrath. Let me save you. Let me deliver you from that. That is a picture of God's mercy that he offers to us. Right now, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for your sins, you are a child of wrath. And the merciful God is withholding that wrath at this moment. He is holding it back and He is offering to you a hand saying, Come away from that. Come to Jesus and be saved from the wrath to come. But He does this because He loves us. But God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. Do you know that God does not have to show us mercy? God could allow us to go into judgment instantly 
at the time of sin. There is no outside force. There is nothing outside of God that says you must be merciful to those people. The only reason that God chooses to be merciful to us is because He loves us. Think about that. There is no compulsion outside of His love for you that causes Him to hold the judgment back and reach out to pull you out of the way of His wrath. I think at times the wonder of God's love for us has been lost in our day. We have become so good in our own sight that we can't fathom why God would not love us. Pretty awesome guy. We have no concept of our depravity. We have no concept that our righteousness, the very best that we can do apart from Jesus, it is like a filthy rag in God's sight. We have no concept of the sacrifice that God made for us on the cross with Jesus Christ. On the cross where Jesus died, God loved those who did not love Him back. Think about that. Jesus died for you long before you ever cared about Jesus. God was calling you to come to Him for salvation, holding the wrath back, calling you to come out long before you ever responded. I would say that it is unlikely anyone in here came to Christ the very first time God called them. Most likely, for most of us, God called and we resisted. God is holding back His wrath. He is reaching out. We feel His hand pulling us. And we're going, no, I like my life. No, I'm fine the way that I am. And God did not let go and bring wrath upon us because He loved us. On the cross, God loved those who would make themselves His enemies and reject His love. Scripture says that we are the enemies of God by our sin. It's not that God is our enemy. It's that we are His enemy. He is the the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who, who rules and reigns. And He says, this is what I want from you. And we say, no, you're not going to be Lord over my life. You ain't the boss of me. I'll do what I want to do. It's treason. It is a declaration of war. I will not be ruled by you, God. And yet God loves us anyway. On the cross, God made a tremendous sacrifice for those who were the objects of His love. The sacrifice of His only begotten Son. I mean, that, that is, again, think about that. How many people would you personally die for? I mean, you would you would take instant death in their place so that they might live. Is that a big number of people? Probably not. Now, out of those people that you would die for, how many of them would you send your child to die for? How many of them would you take your child and say, no, no, I'm going to let... I'm going to let this person go and here, let my child die in their place that they may go free. How big is that list? My list is empty. I love you folks. I would not give my daughter to save one of you. I just wouldn't. And yet that's what God did for us. He sent his son to die in our place. Because he loved us. So does God love us? Is there ever a question? No. There is never a question about God's love. We do not suffer and die instantly as children of wrath because God is rich in mercy and He has a great love that He loves us with. And there is grace in all of this as well. Even when we were dead in sins, He hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Through grace we are given life. That's what quickened means. We are made alive with Christ. And by grace are we saved. Through the grace of God. Life reigns where once there was death. 
Though we were dead in sins, God gives us grace and then God gives us life. We are given life and we are made, in verse 6, raised up together with Jesus and made to set in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Raised up with Him, seated with Him. So that in verse 7, in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This sort of picture is God pointing to us and telling others, look at what I did in Stacy. What I did in Him, I can do in you. What I did in Paul, I can do in you. What I did in Scott, I can do in you. We, we are testimonies, trophies, demonstrating the grace and the goodness and the power of God. And so when we think about this, our lives should be moved to praise, worship, for the greatness and the goodness of God. When God looks at our lives, what He should hear rising from our hearts, if it's not consistently rising from our lips, is us saying, it is not what I have done for God, but what God has done for me. What should constantly come from us is praise and worship and glory to the God who saves not self-exaltation, not self-righteousness, not self-lifting up. But God has done this and not myself. And that is what we will do when we truly understand that God has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So why do I need grace? Because I am spiritually dead. Because I... I'm a child of disobedience and I am following the course of this world laid out by the prince of the power of the air and I am an object and a nature and a child of God's wrath. Why does God give grace? Because He is merciful and because He loves me. But how do I receive grace? Well, I'm sure this won't be surprising, but everything rises and falls on Jesus. Verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 5, when we were dead, He's quickened us together with Christ. He has raised us up together and made us seat in heavenly places in Christ. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith in Christ, and that not of yourselves it is the, the gift of God. Verse 10 even, we are His workmanship created in Christ. Everything God does in us and through us and for us rises and falls in our connection to Jesus. This is really one of the most hated doctrines of the Christian world today. Because it's largely okay to believe in God. right? God is kind of this nebulous being that just makes you feel good. So that's okay. And it's okay to believe in Jesus. Because Jesus is just kind of this hippie love one another kind of guy that just wants you to be happy and love others and be nice. And that's okay. But when you get to the Jesus that says, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. Mm. Well, that's different. To say that Jesus alone saves, that there is no salvation apart from Christ, that is not okay. That is not acceptable in our culture. Yet that is exactly what Scripture teaches. Salvation that's found only in Christ and the necessity of Christ in receiving the riches of God's grace is one of the main themes in Ephesians. We won't do it today. We just don't have time. But go back and read chapter 1 that we've already covered in our study Notice how many times Paul attributes what God does to Christ. You're in Christ because of Christ, through Christ. Then read the rest of the book and see it continually. That point continually being made. Everything, everything, everything 
rises and falls on Jesus. If we do not get Jesus right, it does not matter what else we do get right. If we are wrong on Jesus and we miss Jesus, we miss everything. The reason is because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't just a guy who kind of hacked off the religious leaders. You know, that's one of the mindsets that people have about Jesus. He, he was just a dude with some new insight and he was kind of anti-authority. And he was just pushing back upon the mean old religious leaders. The conservative people. You, you, you know what I mean. He was... He had this new way of life and he was really progressive and hip and cool. And and those old fuddy-duddies, well, they just didn't like that new way he was bringing. Well, that's bogus. That's bunk. That's not what Jesus was. Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. All of the hopes and the dreams of Israel were in Christ. He was also the Son of the living God who was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Unlike us, Jesus was not spiritually dead. Jesus was born without a spiritual or without a sinful nature. And He lived a perfectly sinless life. He never disobeyed God, not in word or deed or attitude or action or priority or value. He didn't violate the letter of the law, the spirit of the law. He he kept it all perfectly. Therefore, he didn't deserve the punishment for sin, which is death. But despite his sinless life, despite all the good that he did for others, one fateful night, he was abandoned by all of his disciples He was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was taken before a kangaroo court, falsely accused and condemned to a criminal's death on the cross. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was mocked. And then he was crucified. Those who crucified him didn't know that that was all a part of God's plan. They assumed they were shutting him down and they would put an end to everything that he was stirring up. But on the cross, He did more than die physically. On the cross, He took all of the the wrath of God against all of our sin. There was a spiritual suffering that took place on the cross. He endured hell in our place. And when He had endured that, He died. Now those who hated Christ thought they had won at His death. Boy, were they surprised a few days later. Since He was the Christ, the Son of the living God, He did not stay dead. He rose victoriously and walked out of the tomb victorious over sin and over death. His resurrection was the final proof that He was who He said He was and everything that He said He could do, He could indeed do. Since Christ lived a sinless life and paid the penalty for our sins and rose from the dead, His righteousness can now be given to us so that we can be truly holy, truly Without blame before God. And all of that is. That's the good news. It's the gospel. The gospel can be hard as well. Because the only way to receive. That righteousness. That Jesus died to provide. Is. Is as a a gift. Of grace. Through faith. We cannot work to earn. Not one little bit. Of our salvation. Not any of it. Grace doesn't cover all of our sins. But there's one we can work off. Grace covers all of our sins. And the salvation that Jesus gives. It is received as a gift of grace. Or it is not received at all. But we cannot partner with God for our salvation. We cannot say, God, if you'll save me from all of these 99 sins, I'll work off the one and say that we have received grace. Because if we are still trying to work off the one, we are as lost as we were when we were trying to work off the 99. And this is where it gets hard. 
It's hard because we don't like that point. We, we don't like that Paul says that it's by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I mean, do you realize that there is not one ounce of your salvation that you can boast about? Nothing. Oh, but, but I realized my need for Jesus. Ah, but you realized your need for Jesus because Jesus said, God the Father first reached out to you and brought you to the place where you understood it. Yes, but, but, but I, I chose to believe. Yes, but God even gave us the faith to believe in verse 8. Oh, but I came to Jesus. Yes, but it was the Spirit that empowered you to come. Wasn't that hard? Isn't that a, a, a rub about salvation? That we are hopeless and helpless apart from God. And that without God enlightening our eyes, without God convicting us of our sin, without God shining light in the darkness, without God saying, come unto me, we would never come to Jesus. Without God saving us, there was nothing that we could do. We would remain lost. For many, that's a stumbling block they cannot overcome. Because it is brutally humbling to admit there is no good thing in me that led to my salvation. Do you believe that about you? That there is no good thing in you that led to your salvation. Man, that's rough, isn't it? Not only that, there is no good thing that I can do that earns an ounce, a drop of my salvation. Do you believe that about you? That there is no good thing that you can do that would ever earn an ounce or a drop of your salvation. There is not any, even any good thing that I can do that makes me worthy of salvation. You believe that about yourself? That there is no good thing that you can do as someone who's been saved that makes you worthy of the salvation that Christ has given to you. I mean, do you, when you read verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, do you read that as your spiritual history? That's me. I was dead. I did walk according to the course of this world. I did follow the path that Satan laid out for my life. I was a child of disobedience. I did live to fulfill the lusts of my flesh, the desires of my flesh and of my mind. I was a child of wrath. And there I would have stayed but for God. That's what we have to believe. That is the only way we can receive grace. Grace cannot received, cannot be received through pride, through merit, through anything that would give a sense of I deserve this. No one will make it to heaven, stand before the Lord and say, yes, I did it. I got here. I earned it. No one will even get to heaven and say, we did it, God. You got me started. You helped along the way when there were some rough paths, but I carried it over the finish line. We will get to heaven and we will say, you did it. I, I was a mess. I was all jacked up every day of my life. In various ways. If it was not for your grace. I would still be a child of disobedience. And an object of wrath. And if we cannot humble ourselves to say that. We will never be able to receive salvation. That comes by grace alone. Through faith alone. And Christ alone. 
Why do I need grace? Because I'm dead. And I'm following a course laid out by the prince of the power of the air. And I'm a child of disobedience and an object of wrath. Why does God give grace? Because He is merciful and He loves me. How do I receive grace? Through faith alone, in Christ alone. And finally, what is the result of grace? Verse 10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath said, hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Verse 10 gives us some major changes that are made by grace. Again, let's just kind of in our mind review the way that people are described prior to receiving grace. Dead in trespasses and sins. Walking according to the course of this world. Walking, following the the prince of the power of the air. Children of disobedience. Living to fulfill the lust of our flesh and the desires of our mind and the desires of our flesh. By our very nature, the children of wrath. That's apart from Christ. But what happens once we receive grace? We are quickened. We are made alive in Christ. We are raised up and seated with Christ. We are testimonies of God's kindness through Christ. We are saved because of Christ. And then in verse 10, we are created anew in Christ. Those are significant changes that are a result of receiving the grace of God. The changes that grace brings into our life are so significant that when Scripture seeks to sum them up in in one word or one phrase, it uses amazing things like born again, new creation. And the point of it all is that we're not the same because grace changes us. Grace not only changes our eternal destination, grace changes us in very practical daily ways. Every day of our lives is different because we have received the grace of God. The change is so sure, so certain, that when you read the accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels, you find that there are some people who come to Jesus and they leave unchanged. But they are always, without exception, those who rejected Him. No one who ever came to Jesus and received Jesus was ever the same. This change is so sure. The great American evangelist D.L. Moody said it this way, There is not a difference in your life since you became a Christian that I am afraid you have not become a real one. My dear friend, if you have been saved ten years and you are the same today as you were ten years ago, you should not live with any sort of certainty about your salvation. You should not believe I mean, think about what we've talked about with what Jesus went through. How how can believing that leave us the same? How can knowing that the God of the universe who spoke the world into existence and upholds it with the word of His power, that He has loved us and has given us mercy and has saved us, how can experiencing that leave us the same? It can't. It is not possible. If you are the same person you were before you made a profession of faith in Christ, my friend, you should fear that all you have is a profession of faith in Christ and not the, recept, not the receiving of the grace of God that comes through Christ. I do not want to cause people to fear and be alarmed, but I do want to be honest. Where there is no change, there is no Jesus, there is no salvation. And just because we prayed a prayer and we got dunked into some water, 
That is not the confidence we should have because that is never the confidence that Scripture gives us. Paul never went to people and said, did you pray a prayer? Did you go to the altar? Were you baptized? Paul said, examine yourselves. Prove that Jesus is among you. And know that if he's not, it's because you're disqualified. You're a reprobate. You're lost. We don't have time this morning to get into all the ways that Jesus changes us. But the rest of verse 10 does give us one primary way. We are his workmanship created in Christ unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are created in Christ to do good works that God long ago planned for us to accomplish. One of the terrible misunderstandings about grace is that grace frees us to be lazy in our Christian lives. Many have said in one way or another that since they are saved by grace, then they are basically free to do nothing in their Christian life. Now, very few have said this with their mouths, but many have said it with their lives. With their mouths, they'll confess that they live for Jesus. But with their lives, they testify that they live for themselves. Now, when I talk about someone living for themselves, I don't necessarily mean living in wicked immorality, though it can mean that. But make no mistake, it is not limited to that. Living for yourself could be sleeping in rather than getting up to pray because that's what you want to do. Living for yourself could be watching TV rather than reading Scripture because that's what you want to do. Living for yourself could be talking about the weather rather than sharing the gospel because that's what you want to do. Living for yourself could be giving miserly rather than generously because that's what you want to do. Living for yourself could be attending church occasionally rather than faithfully because that's what you want to do. Living for yourself could be attending church rather than finding and using your own spiritual gifts and serving because that's what you want to do. Living for yourself does not require sin in the way that we typically define it. Living for yourself just means that we do what we want to do. We don't have to do bad things to live for ourselves. We can just refrain from doing good things because we don't want to do them. And we are living for ourselves every bit as much as the fornicator or the pornographer is. Just generally doing what you want to do is living for yourself and it is contrary to the grace of God. We are saved to serve. The service does not save us. The service does not add to our salvation. But the service does give proof of our salvation. It is a testimony that we have been born again, created anew. Serving God is not optional as a part, is not an optional part of the Christian's life. It is the natural result of receiving the grace of God. Someone who has understood the depths of their own depravity, the unbelievable nature of God's grace, and then receives that grace cannot help but do good works. For the one who has saved them. Grace is not opposed to work. Grace is opposed to merit. We cannot work enough to earn our salvation. We cannot work enough to merit. Or to pay Christ back for our salvation. That is grace. But that does not mean we are not meant to work. We are saved to serve. Now. By no means does this mean our works and our service will be perfect. There will always be times where we fail to do as we ought to do. 
We will always need grace to cover our sins. We will always need grace to cover our flaws, our failures. There will be times where our service is not as fervent as it should be. There will be times where our grace falls far, our service falls falls short, far short of what God would have us to be. But the grace of God that we have received compels us to try again and again and again. Now, some can say, "If okay, I'm confused though. If I don't earn my salvation, but I'm still expected to work, how is that different?" Think about it this way. A religious person will serve God to earn favor with God. A religious person will serve God to earn salvation from God. A grace person will serve God because God has poured out His favor upon them. A grace person will serve God because they have been redeemed. The why is what changes. Why do I serve? Are we ser- am I serving so that God will love me? Or am I serving because God loves me? Those are vastly different concepts. Do I serve to earn salvation? Or do I serve because I have received salvation? Those are vastly different concepts. We are created in Christ to do these good works. And if we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we cannot help but try to do them. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. I want to ask you this morning, what practical difference has the grace of God made in your life? How are you different today because you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Not how are you different because you're older. Not how are you different because you're married. Not how are you different because you have kids. Not how are you different because your life situation has changed. How are you different Because you came to Christ in faith and received the grace of God. My dear friend, if you cannot pinpoint legitimate changes that have been made in your life by the grace of God, might I suggest you spend some time this morning searching your heart, searching your life to be sure That you have genuinely been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This morning, that amazing grace that is offered freely to whosoever will. If you are alive, God is withholding judgment for a time. He is reaching out His hand to you, calling on you to take hold And let Him pull you out of the way of His wrath. Will you come to Jesus today? Will you reach out and take hold of God's hand? And let Him pull you out of the way of the wrath that is to come. Pour out the riches of His grace and His mercy and His love upon you. God loves you. And God loves you enough to let you choose. This day the choice is yours. Will you grab hold of God's hand? Or will you presume upon His mercy and stay under that wrath? Let's take time and pray. And if you have never taken hold of God, you do that this morning. You cry out to God for grace. You cry out to God for mercy. You cry out to God for salvation. There are no magic words to pray. No particular sinner's prayer that must be uttered. 
But if you are genuinely seeking the Lord and the Lord is genuinely seeking you, the words will spring up from your heart through the Holy Spirit. You cry out to God.